it is one of your your good co-hosts alex steed sarah will join us in a little bit um we are having a little trouble coordinating uh, for an intro this week because i am moving to nashville tennessee and in the process of doing so right now carolyn kendrick the show producer and myself we're moving to nashville so it's a little hard to coordinate our intro so you just get me this week all right i'm so excited so excited we are covering the rocky horror picture show finally it's a long past time long past time to cover the rocky horror picture show which we're covering for our soft spooky halloween month the rocky horror picture show of course is a 1975 musical comedy horror film produced by lou adler and michael white and directed by jim Sharman. the screenplay was of course written by Sharman and actor richard o'brien who, as you know, is a member of the cast. This is just the best. We talk about it with our great friend Chelsea Weber-Smith of American Hysteria. We love this movie so much. And since You Are Good is a feelings podcast about movies, this is a perfect conversation for what we set out to do with this show. First, I just want to let you know a couple of things. One, You Are Good is made possible by you, your generous Patreon support, patreon.com slash you are good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. We appreciate that you help make this whole thing possible. It's so much appreciated. You get bonus episodes over at Patreon. We just put one up about Halloween. We talk about calamities my dog Wheezy has gotten into lately. We talk about some of our favorite books. They're looser conversations, uh, but they're a whole lot of fun. We usually talk about movies, talk about books, talk about whatever we're immersed in during the week. You Are Good is also made possible with generous support by Knack Factory. Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, is a commercial and creative video content production company based in Portland, Maine. There does work throughout these here United States. If that's the kind of work you need done, get in touch with our wonderful underwriters at Knack Factory. We have playlists that we release with each of our episodes. They're uh, songs inspired by the conversation, songs inspired by the movie itself. Check that out. It's in the show notes. And of course, speaking of music, the music of You Are Good Volume 1 is available on Bandcamp. That is linked uh, in the show notes as well. All right, let's get to this. You know about Rocky Horror. You know about it. How's it going out there? Let us know. We're on Twitter, twitter.com slash you are good pod, Instagram, Instagram.com slash you are good pod. All right, let's do the time warp again. Hey, Janet. Yes, Brad. I've got something to say. Uh huh. Brad, please, let's get out of here. For God's sake, keep a grip on yourself, Janet. But it's, it seems unhealthy here. It's just a party. So, come up to the lab. And see what's on the slab. I see you shiver with anticipation. Say, do any of you guys know how to Madison? It's just a jump to the left. Sarah Marshall. Alex Steed. We meet again. You just said, speaking of gay curses. Yeah. uh, Why and who and how and all of the above? We were talking about a film that my phone just autocorrected to the Ricky Horror Picture (laughs) Show. And I think people know what that means. This movie would be so different if Dr. Frank Herger's name was Ricky. Yeah, we don't know that it's not Ricky, Frank and Furter, but we're, we're getting off track already. 
And who are we with? We're with Chelsea Weber Smith. Hi, Chelsea. One of my favorite podcasters. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I had to. I've been saying that a lot, just like when I enter spaces, just hello. It's perfect. You know? it's, it's appropriate. <laughs> yep, Richard O'Brien. We we invited Chelsea to come up to the lab. <laughs> Chelsea, this is a movie that you wanted to specifically wanted to cover. So before Sarah walks us through <laughs> the plot or attempts to, we were just saying before we started up that all of us love this movie and none of us know what happens at the end of it. (laughs) Tell us about, first of all, who you are and what your relationship with this movie is. Well, I am also a podcaster and I do the show American Hysteria and we cover, you know, moral panics, conspiracy theories, fantastical thinking, anything I decide I want to talk about. And then For Rocky Horror, I've wanted to do an episode about this, but I haven't figured out quite the angle to make Mm. to like mash it into my theme. It's my favorite movie. And that's crazy, right? It's like to to be able to distill Mm -hmm. into a favorite movie. Like, I think it's just totally wild to have a favorite movie. But, you know, this was something I watched when I was 11, 12 years old and just starting to come into like some idea of what my sexuality could possibly be like you know it was Mm -hmm. like one of those things where my dad gifted this to me my very strange dad gifted me rocky horror when i was about 11 or 12 and it's his favorite movie Mm. you were kind of talking about this when you were talking about john waters and just sort Mm. of the the chaos of this film and like the amorality there's no there's not an after school special note hit at any time yeah no one learns anything (laughs) no nobody learns anything anything and it is just like a homage to camp and horror and bad sci-fi and the music is so punk rock right it's such Mm. it's just it's just a punk rock musical and obviously it it developed into this entire subculture which I'm sure we'll talk about and just a place for all the misfits it's one of those movies probably like the archetypal misfit Mm invite into a a nicer world and I want to talk more about it but it is also for me like an inversion of what it's like to be the weird one Mm -hmm. like it's about these very buttoned up normal people who become the freaks in a very queer scene oh that's such a good point so I yeah I've been thinking so much about this movie right before this I was just singing as loud as I could alone in my house to the soundtrack the soundtrack never fails to make me happy just it just always makes me happy and I don't really have an explanation except for just the magic and, and particularly the magic of Tim Curry, which is fun because, you know, mm-hmm. Sarah and I have discussed a lot of clown related business, <laughs> especially Tim Curry's portrayal of Pennywise. So oh my God. Yeah, this feels sort of in a similar uh, heart space for me. And it's all Tim Curry. Oh, yeah. And then there's the fact that Tim Curry was like in so many iconic movies that millennials grew up on. And I'm thinking specifically of The Worst Witch and Muppet Treasure Island. (laughs) Yeah, Muppet Treasure Island for sure. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, before we we touch the emotions here, Godspeed you in your endeavor to uh, summarize what the plot is. I have a flow chart. I'm ready. Sarah has a gorgeous flow chart. I would say like, my memory is it falls off a bit earlier than it does, but Mm -hmm. I was actually surprised at how coherent... The first 80% of the movie is, and then 
let's let's get through that and then maybe attempt to explain what the what happens at the end of it to me this really works as a musical and like i'm no expert but one of the things that musicals do if they're like something that couldn't be anything else but a musical and if they're like a musical truly at their core is that the plot happens through song and then Mm. the actual talking scenes don't really move that much furniture around you know like an opera where you just like sing your heart out and then you chat for like 90 seconds and then somebody else has to sing their heart out and then you just continue until everyone's exhausted okay this is a 24 item plot flow chart so (laughs) i have one brad proposes two blowout three arrival at mansion four time warp five dr f appears six lab seven rocky unveiled eight eddie appears nine dr f kills eddie ten bedtime 11, Dr. F has sex with Janet. 12, Dr. F has sex with Brad. 13, Rocky escapes. 14, Janet has sex with Rocky. 15, Dr. Scott shows up to find Eddie. 16, Ditter. 17, Eddie's body unveiled because they were eating Eddie. 18, everyone gets medusid. <laughs> 19, Magenta and Riff Raff demand to return to Transylvania. 20, The Floor Show. And then I just gave up and started writing song titles and lyrics. 21, Don't Dream It, Be It. 22, Rose Tint My World. 23, Riff Raff Revolts. 24, I'm Going Home. And then I stopped writing because I was distracted. So I guess 25, Riff Raff Kills Dr. F and Rocky. 26, (laughs) Magenta and Riff Raff take the entire mansion back to transsexual and Brad Janet and Dr. Scott hobble out some insects lost in space, the end. <laughs> how would you describe that narratively for a person who has no frame of reference for what any of those plot points are? Like, how would you describe that as someone who hasn't seen the movie? It hardly matters what it's about in a way, because I just feel like the experience of it is like stepping into surf and then you get carried away by a wave of song and then wave after wave takes you. And then you realize that you're like really far out from shore and you're like, whatever. And then some dolphins carry you home and you forget how you got there. I think that's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're, you're dead on about the plot not mattering. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be able to do a plot summary. And and I think that's part of the beauty is that it holds itself with no plot. That's pretty impressive to me that you don't really mm. pay attention. I forget that there's a murder. I forget, that there's, <laughs> <laughs> I forget there's cannibalism. There's a bunch of murders at the end. I know, I know. And so it's, but really watching it this time, I think part of what's so wonderful about this like plotlessness and, and amorality is that is you can project a lot onto it. Mm. I don't know if you guys have ever read Still Life with Woodpecker by uh, Tom Robbins. I know that's like no. a deep, deep cut. But is that the one with the camel pack? Yes. yes. And that's that's mm-hmm. the I love that idea that you can take something and like divine the entire truth of the universe from any one thing. Mm. If you choose to like flip it around and look at it in different ways. That's true for this movie. I read plenty of think pieces before, uh, you know, this this last week and stuff to, to get ready and uh, lots of things I didn't think of. But yeah, that not having this plot makes it so open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I first saw this movie when I was 13. And at the time I was like, wow, this movie is 26 years old. And now I'm like, wow, this movie is 
older than that. And so am I. I mean, the, the stage show that it's based on is almost 50 years old because I think that premiered in 1973. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's still nothing like this. Like it's influenced a lot and we live in a world that was made different because of it. But like, I still can't think of anything I've seen that is like it. Even now, I feel like I'm breaking my brain trying to sort it into some kind of category of movie. And then I, we should bring up what is kind of the inevitable corollary, which is like there's watching the movie in your home. And then there's the experience of going to some kind of a screening that maybe involves a live floor show of it where people are calling out, you know, all of the like riffs, the like MST3K treatment that this I think made this movie such a cultural touchstone. And this thing where like the practice of going out and heckling a movie that is being corny on purpose and that you're heckling because it's asking to be heckled and this decades old, very alive relationship between movie and the live experience that it creates. Like, I mean, I'm sure there's other things like that, but I, I guess to me, like the Rocky Horror Picture Show is always more than a movie. Like it's like the movie is the seed. What is your relationship and with the outside of the screen, Sarah? I have talked in the past about how I grew up with a very overprotective mom, but she's overprotective based on her read of what is dangerous and what is not. And she never felt the Rocky Horror Picture Show to be dangerous. And she also felt that it was appropriate for her 13-year-old daughter to go with her 13-year-old best friend and their stepmom to see it at the Clinton Street Theater in Portland at midnight when we were in the eighth grade and like there are many things that I spent my time on at that age that I really regret. And like, that's not one of them. That's one of the things that I, I was at an impressionable age and that made the right impression. (laughs) And I think, (laughs) I mean, actually the live show is like a duplicate experience of the movie in a way, because it's the middle of the night. You go to this mysterious place full of weirdos. And if you're a young kid, especially if you get to be Brad and Janet and you're like, the world is bigger than my stupid school. And like someday I'll be able to hang out with weirdos all the time. (laughs) You know, it's, this is like one time where I'm, I'm a little surprised that we're talking about how plot doesn't matter. Cause I Mm -hmm. find plot to be extraordinarily important in this movie. Hmm. It's like Willy Wonka, but Willy Wonka is like a queer anarchist. Even more of a queer anarchist than he is in Willy Wonka. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. He is a homicidal queer anarchist, but in a different way than the other Willy Wonka. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Willy Wonka is down with children dying because they're a little bit selfish, which I think makes Dr. Frankenfurter pretty sympathetic in comparison, even. Absolutely. It's paying homage to a lot of B horror and sci-fi movies from the RKO era, era through like the through the later 50s. But like our movie monster as the movie monsters will throughout the 70s kind of becomes a hero in itself. And like we have mm. Frankenfurter who's like kind of a hero, kind of not a hero. There's a lot of reasons why Frankenfurter being a hero is problematic. I'm sure we'll talk about those things. And then it does this thing that you're talking about where like when not just like the plot, but the artifact of the movie and the plot I see is like essentially like straight people going to a queer haunted house and then being converted into the queerness, which is awesome. What a dream. (laughs) 
yeah, what a dream. Then, then somehow, like, bursts out of the screen mm-hmm. and becomes a reality in itself that yeah. eighth grade girls go to or whoever. Ideally, eighth grade girls. Ideally. Yes, and then they immerse themselves in that queer haunted house that somehow lives outside of the screen, which I think is fucking, like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and also, like, like, my mom is afraid of everything. I was talking to her yesterday. And she was like, don't light a propane camp stove indoors because you'll suffocate. And I was like, I know. I'm like 50. I know. I know. I know. (laughs) But like she wasn't afraid of that because she understood that there was nothing to be afraid of. Like the worst case scenario is that your kid is going to figure out who they are. That's so interesting because my dad is just danger city, you know, just no rules. He allegedly in the canon of my father lost his virginity after seeing Rocky Horror for the first time. (laughs) It's very encouraging on that front. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it it sure is. It sure is. But yeah, I mean, he obviously didn't see it as dangerous and and exalted it in this way. That's funny that it can be it can be both like it's somehow safe and dangerous. Outside of fucking after it. Why did your father love, (laughs) love this movie so much? I just think on some level he got it. I mean, Mm. even though he's, you know, been married to two different women, he's very odd. He's so strange. I mean, this this man, he's the one who was an apocalypse prepper when I was growing up, which is sort of Mm. the American hysteria, like Mm. the... Mm the seed. Um, and so, you know, he just, he definitely was always a misfit. And I think that was movie just resonated with Mm. him. Like if he'd like sneak in, you know, and watch it play on the big drive-in theater, which sounds just, I know, doesn't that just sound so nice sneaking into like a movie you're not supposed to see on a giant screen in the warm summer air. I know it sounds so nice. (laughs) (sighs) This movie is just, it's something that people share together, probably unlike any other movie. It's it's almost a rite of passage, right? It's almost like like legend tripping when you go to this place, to, like you said, <laughs> yeah. to live this queer haunted house while you're watching. It's like it's just very meta. Yeah. I mean, I like that it, it has found a way to exist in real space and like it memefied into this world, which is really fascinating. I came to it like a little late. This will be revealing in some ways and I don't know what the reveal is, but like I didn't like the people who liked it when I first ran into Mm -hmm. it. Like I didn't like some of the theater kids I knew who liked it or I was just like, this is too much. I feel like you were like a mosh kid and maybe mosh kids and theater kids like weren't friends in the 90s. Is that true? Yeah, I realized yesterday that the first record I bought was the Butthole Surfers or Locust abor- Abortion Technician. So it's like, that's where I was at at 12. Uh-huh. Other kids were just like whimsy. And I was like, nah, <laughs> I'm, mm, uh. <laughs> My first run in with this in fiction was that book that like every preteen read at some point, uh, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. I never read that one. I didn't read it either. That was like big with sensitive kids for a while, at my age at least. And there's a kid who's dealing with like PTSD from dealing with the trauma of realizing that he was molested at some point. And he finds this whole community and subculture. And I think like listening to the Smiths, which is really funny and finding a community with Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I think like that or that is what or with Rocky Horror. And that is what like made me give it more of a chance was like reading that book and then and then learning other people who weren't the people I knew who loved this artifact. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh, 
he fucks both of them. <laughs> Arguably, he rapes both of them. But like, I was like, oh, and like they're both and they both find it compelling at the end. I was like, oh, there's some really interesting stuff going on inside and out here. <laughs> Let's talk about this moment, because like this for me as not quite a tween, but practically and still is the moment where I'm like, ah, that's the moment when things start to get maybe a little bit plotty. And that's where the icon version of the film kind of lapses into just the nitty gritty of like, how how do you craft a story? So yeah, we have Brad and Janet, who I realize now, I think when I was younger, I was like, yeah, they're like young adults. They're doing okay. I knew they're supposed to be, you know, a slut and an asshole. That's what you yell when you see Brad, you yell, asshole, slut, asshole. Again and again. I knew that they were <laughs> again and again. <laughs> Someday, I just want a, a big explosion in movies that you can go and like scream things ritualistically during because it's clearly good for us. But we know that Brad and Janet are supposed to be sort of like classic middle American jerks who, if they get married and follow the path that has been set out for them, they're probably going to be pretty miserable in a few years. Like, I feel like that's meant to be a given. And they're just the generic couple who is in any like 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s B movie. Like watching it now, I'm just so much more aware of how much of a bummer their uninterrupted lives if they didn't stumble on this castle, how much of a bummer we're supposed to think their lives are going to be if they didn't have this misadventure. And then they arrive, they allow themselves to be undressed by these weirdos who they find and go up to the lab and see what's on the slab. They basically just stumble across this big party in honor of the fact that Dr. Frankenfurter has created a sex monster, I guess, basically, <laughs> to have sex with, which that's a whole other interesting area of consent that I think is more relevant now that we're getting pretty close to being able to create sex robots, or maybe mm -hmm. we are. I don't know. I think we're, I think they're, I think they're out there. Yeah. <laughs> and they're going to rise up. So be nice to them. <laughs> I was just telling someone I'm always nice to the automatic checkout because if our interactions go into some collective cloud, I want them to have a nice memory of me. Mm -hmm. Oh, they're going to hate me. I'm always <laughs> bitching at it. Oh, no. I'm like, yeah. thank you. I'm like, <laughs> You have to play the long game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then after the sex monster unveiling, this is Rocky Horror himself, of course. Or I, maybe it's Rocky. Is horror his last name? I think horror okay. is his last name. I think <laughs> so. Okay. I think it's a horror picture show. <laughs> oh, I always thought it was the Rocky Horror picture show. <laughs> I don't know if there's a definitive answer. <laughs> Alex, you also know that I thought that the 80s recording artist was named Peter Cetera for like 30 years. So I do. And I love it so much. And I'm honestly, I'm saying that and I don't know the answer to this either. I'm realizing that I don't know. the answer to this. <laughs> it could be both. You know, what's another thing I realized the other day and I was not sober when I had this realization, but I do think it's mm -hmm. it's real. Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes. Buy a Sherlock home. Feel safe. Ooh. Right? It's right there. Anyway. <laughs> so then after we have the monster unveiling, we get into the morally tricky area, I guess. Or the, building a sex monster is morally tricky. And then we keep going because then Meatloaf shows up. 
Meatloaf is in this movie. I like always forget that. And then I'm like, oh, Meatloaf is here. And he's hot in this movie. <laughs> and he's hot. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Even playing a character who just had half his brain removed. God. He looks great. He is one of Dr. F's past conquests. And so Dr. Frankenfurter kills him. And then everyone goes to bed. And then Janet is woken up by Dr. Frankenfurter, who is first pretending to be Brad very well. And then she realizes who it is. And she's like, oh, no, I was saving myself for Brad. This is terrible. No, stop. And then very quickly, she's like, "Okay." (laughs) She's like, you want to tell Brad? Yes. (laughs) And then Dr. Frankenfurter goes to where Brad is sleeping and they repeat basically the exact same interaction, except that he pretends to be Janet for a second, also doing a great job. And then let me consult my chart. Yes. Then Rocky escapes. Janet has sex with Rocky. And we get into the whole dinner where they eat Eddie. And then basically the final act is that Riff Raff and Magenta rebel against Dr. Frankenfurter and are like, we're going to go back to Transylvania. No, you can't come. We're going to kill you and go back ourselves. And we have a whole thing with Columbia also saying you chew people up and spit them out and you're a sponge and I loved you and you take, take, take (laughs) (laughs) and train people. (laughs) Consent is the first issue that comes up. And that makes me think also of the whole concept of free love in the sixties and the way that our ideals of sex have a hard time maybe meshing with figuring out what to do with all our baggage around it and what to do with other people's baggage around the sex that we would like to have that would be great for everybody if if we all wanted to be having it, basically. I kind of see Frankenfurter as in a non-monogamy situation, right? If we look at this as like one big polycule, um, it's like Frank is like the one that's like, bringing people into this like big relationship but then as soon as something doesn't go his way or as soon as columbia shows interest in eddie you know Mm -hmm. he just goes on like a kind of a narcissistic fit and starts Mm -hmm. killing people and you know it's interesting to think of him as the villain and all of his creations as eventually coming to come together and stand up to this person. And Mm. when they do, he turns them all to stone, right? It's like this Mm. scene where Columbia starts and she says, you drain people of their love and emotion. And she gets turned to stone. And then they all sing the song together. You're a hot dog, but you better not try (laughs) to hurt her. So there's this weird like usurping that happens of this almost like cult leader in this really, Mm. you know, strange relationship where it's a house of of non-monogamy and i think all the problems of non-monogamy if any i don't know about your history but there are many and it can be very complicated and well none of these none of these people are communicating my problem is that i'm at heart a very monogamous person and if i try to do anything with non-monogamy i would turn into lorraine bracco from goodfellas i think and be like there is a hoy in your building i know we agreed to this and and we had lots of talks about it but ah yeah yeah (laughs) well like yeah i mean a tenant of non like not a tenant but like a best practice is oodles of clear and vulnerable communication and that is most certainly not going on at frank's house do you think lawyers are good at it like good lawyers. Uh, 
Because they're like, before we do anything, let's talk about the implications. Here are the terms. Do you think lawyers normally do that? Um, I think that they're trained to do that at work. And if they could bring that to their romantic lives, it might be nice for some of them. But I don't know. How much energy do you have for that if you've been doing it all day? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think like a literal read on the scene where there's the coercive sex, it's coercive sex and it's not good. And it there's not consent and it's bad. Right. I also think it's like a 60s fantasy of coercive sex. It's like the viewpoint, I think, specifically a lot of guys had in this era of like, no doesn't mean yes necessarily but no means convince me and as soon as you like put your finger in I'll realize that you're great at it and I'll be excited to proceed and it's like no no (laughs) in a non-sexually liberated culture I think the idea is like the consent is there but there's all these layers on top that we have to break away to get to the yes which is problematic but it is like a different you know, and this isn't a defense. It's just an acknowledgement right. of 1975. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't notice this my whole life until this last rewatch, which was one, mm. one of the fantastic things, is that they're listening to Nixon's resignation yes. speech in the car. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It just puts it firmly in its moment. And it's already in this growing fervor. Anita Bryant is like starting to, yeah. you know, get her vampire fangs out and uh, go across the country. I know this is a tangent, but like, I didn't know until I listened to your podcast about it. And this is such a revelation to me that Anita Bryant had this whole theory about how gay people are vampires. Like, can you talk about that for a second? I do feel like this relates. Yeah. The Transylvania thing. It's true. But yeah, it, ta- it she talks about sort of like how they eat life, you know, because sperm is life. <laughs> yeah, you're you're drinking life itself. And it's uh, I mean, people also eat eggs, you know, it's whatever. <laughs> we don't need to try to make sense of Anita Bryant. Yeah, I know. <laughs> So wait a second. I want to go back. So the first part of what I was saying is, again, if you read this literally, the consent story is a bad consent story. But if you read this again as like this is their two first experiences with queer sex, they're having these moments where the conflict is not with Frankenfurt, the conflict is with themselves, right? It's just like, is this a thing that I ultimately want to do or don't want to do? The moment where they have sex with Frank, they both have sex with Frankenfurt, although I don't know if Brad actually has sex with Frankenfurt that they start before Rocky gets out. No, he does. Well, Brad's smoking, so like that implies that it's happened. Oh, yeah, yeah great, 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 yeah. He gets a, a blowjob, right? Oh, great. I think it's a blowjob, yeah. Good for Brad. I love when people are like, there wasn't a message, but of course, of course there was. Like you put, <laughs> you put your experience into art and like this is like when they like truly enter they're not just like looking at queer wonderland like they're in it after this point right they have swallowed the life i mean the fact that the nixon resignation speech is playing at this moment feels like you know we're looking at historical eras and they feel like such a holdover from the early 60s just in the way they dress and brad's desire to do the madison which we just talked about in hairspray i just heard that (laughs) (laughs) i was so excited that i understood that reference finally and like why the time warp is like the Madison a little bit. Yeah. And this idea too, that like if Brad and Janet are to continue their lives uninterrupted, like Janet may never have an orgasm for her entire life. She would never. Yeah. Is this in Denton, Texas? I feel like it's supposed to be Ohio because Janet is reading a paper that is called the Plain Dealer, smart, which is a Cleveland paper. Got it. 
we talked about this a little bit before, but Brad and Janet, as these normal kids from Ohio who are ready to start their boring life, come into this space and they are the freaks, right? Among all of these people that are designed to look as freaky as possible. And everybody stops when they walk in and it's like a record scratch of like, who is that, you know? And uh, it almost felt like what it's like to be the only queer person at a baby shower. (laughs) 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 And I think when Brad and Janet come in and then they get undressed and there's this like vulnerability and everyone's looking at them again through the opera glasses. And there's just something about it that, that really is an invert, like an invert yeah. of the experience of being the only queer person in a quote unquote normal situation mm-hmm. and what people project sort of onto you. I think that's one of the big successes of this film. Right. It's why it felt so weird when Glee did this. Oh, did they? Oh, of course they did. Right. Of course. I Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> That was okay. I think, and, and Glee did like an interesting thing for sure in television that I think it got poo pooed for at the time. But like, also, like, I worked with young kids at that time and noticed that like there was like how kids regarded each other before Glee and how they regarded kids each other after Glee. So I think it had cultural impact or whatever. But it also just felt like this again, like this movie is like queer anarchy. And then it got turned into like a series of numbers for the TV mm. show on ABC or whatever. And it like very much, I don't know, it felt like that. Man, and Ryan Murphy is like the opposite of Richard O'Brien in that he his biggest mm. folly is kind of his after school special attitude. You know, it'll be right, like right, right, really, right. really good, really good. And then it's like, I've got to drill some sort of like pillowy liberal message into my yeah, yeah, show, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? And, exactly. and it's like, fuck, you just, you almost had it. You know, you almost had it. My first political organizing stuff and like civil rights stuff was around like gay marriage and and then like there were like mm-hmm. all the conversations about where it's like it should marriage be the goal like should it be like sort of like maintaining like a queer weirdness like oh it, all things that like I was like very new to at the time and in a way that like makes me very much appreciate mm. the end of this movie which is like maybe he's taken the task for being too libertine at the end kind of we think and then there's like murders as a result <laughs> like this movie isn't like in in the end we learn to accept each other like no nope. not at all <laughs> just fucking people die <laughs> and in the end Brad and Janet were left to crawl around in their sexy outfits and <laughs> they're, they're <Yeah>. charming undergarments <laughs> i don't know man it's like there are no answers it's not good nobody wins like it's not necessarily good that they went to this house and were liberated it's not bad it's just like the amorality of this film is something that i find so interesting it's just it just doesn't teach you anything i just meant and in, in maybe in that way it teaches you everything right well, and the one success is going to be we know Janet's going to come. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> the spinoff that we really need is Columbia and Eddie. Oh, yeah. Their love story is so beautiful to me that, you know, Columbia is one of my heroes of this because she really is the one who stands out as someone who doesn't Mm -hmm. take shit. She sees the bad parts of Frank and Frank and Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess everybody does. I guess that's not exactly true, but people who are not Brad and Janet, people who are in this Mm -hmm. contained world, I think Columbia. And she's not from space, right? She's just like a townie or something. Right. I think she was like the first 
partner mm. of the polycule. You know, she was like the original. Yeah. <laughs> then came Eddie. To your point, too, about Columbia, like she's the first trigger point that we see of that way that you described Frankfurter earlier, where like, mm. you know, like Frankfurter's game until like he until there's someone else's interest is somewhere else yeah. and then gets like mm. really bitchy about it. Like there's the part where everyone's weighing in on how Rocky is like he's great, like a Marvel, you know, sort of like a Marvel. And she's like, he's OK. And that's when we see. He's OK. Yeah. <laughs> OK. OK. Yeah. <laughs> We could just get started and and keep quoting the whole thing, I feel like. We could. If you want some little Nell backstory, you should read Geraldine Brooks's Foreign Correspondence, which was assigned for some reason in my sixth grade homeroom. And then the school made the teacher rip out a page that talked about little Nell's club and how allegedly there was oral sex. (laughs) And like she had to rip out the pages. But then she was like, the school made me rip out this page of all your books, but I'm going to read it to you. Nice. Oh, my God. Nice subversive columbia has always been special to me because she was a character her actress was a character in a book that i loved before i knew her as a character and yeah just that the voice the tap dancing the sparkles when i went to the live show when i was 13 i wanted to dress as magenta but only because that's an easier outfit to do because it's essentially a french made costume and i already had the hair well and that's a good question is alex who would you go as yeah. Who would I dress as? Right. I think my preferences are Columbia and Frank. Okay. Mm-hmm. Aesthetically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what do you like about those characters? Or like what like what would you enjoy about emulating them? Let's all do fantasy Rocky Horror dress up. I similarly of all of them am, am most drawn to Columbia as like both both I mean the first the voice is just phenomenal. The overall yeah. attitude is amazing. There's a lot of shine to the outfit, which I, I love so much. Yeah. And I, I think she's like kind of the, the strangest of the cadre of characters that, that aren't riffraff, but like who wants to go as riffraff? I don't, I need to know more about that person. I need to, too. I wouldn't personally, but like, yeah, I want to be friends with the people who want to go as riffraff. I agree. Yeah, totally. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too vain. I wouldn't want to do that. I, I want to look Mm-mm. great. Right. Yep. I remember going to this live show with my best friend in eighth grade. And I remember one of my friends in 10th grade, me and her showing this movie to another girl we were friends with, who I think didn't really get into it, but we were very into it. On both these occasions, it's like, at the time, at least like nominally straight girls, which a lot more teenage girls were in 2003 than are now, thank God, <laughs> really connecting with this movie. And I can't speak for for my friends at the time, but just watching this again, I was like, oh, yeah, like Frankenfurter was a revelation. And I remember just being, you know, this 13 year old singing Sweet Transvestite and just like feeling that. And it, I think came partly from the sense I think Brad and Janet are a great example of this. And I think like the culture that we're in has kind of caught up with this idea that like no one is really straight. Straightness is like this horrible, difficult performance that like no one does correctly. And if you're trying to do it, then it's just like you'll never get there. And the harder you try, the farther you get away from it. Because if you're like, I'm manly, I can't use a pink hammer. And it's like, by your very attempt at that performance, you're expressing the fact that you know you're not the thing that you're trying so hard. Mm-hmm. This movie is an expression of how queerness is just a more comfortable fit, I think, for everybody. I'm just going to say everybody. 
Yeah. Yeah. Sarah, you said it so much better than I was saying earlier, where it's like the Wonderland thing is like, I think like what's more important is it's just a confrontation with like sort of the rigid artifice of like straightness. Mm -hmm. Right. So like once your straightness is like really exposed to you in that room, it's a battle to do everything you can to like pretend as if it's an actual thing. Right. And you're like, boy, it was easier to pretend that I liked doing this when I was surrounded by people who are pretending the same thing. Right, right, right. The straight ideal of femininity, especially for tweens and teens, really for everybody, though, is like you will always be too much. And if you're not too much, you're always running the risk of being too much. And like I remember just the like embarrassing stories section of 17. It always ended with like and then I realized my tampon string was out. Oh, no, I was talking to a boy and my tampon string was out. And it's like. (laughs) Uh huh. Like they have to learn at some point that like blood is going to come out of your body, right? Like you can't hide it from them. Just this this world where like the fact of your existence was embarrassing, and you had to do the most you can to minimize it. And that Frankenfurter is just the opposite of that. And it was like easier to identify with him than to identify with characters in the OC. Yeah. Tim Curry is not by sort of our standards a good-looking person necessarily, but he is so fucking hot in this movie. Mm -hmm. I can't think of anybody who's not somewhat attracted to this character, right? Which is a testament to his performance, but also the power of a a non-binary character like that because the movie's not about transness right it's not it leaves kind of all of that at the door and it's much Mm. more genderqueer to me than it is binary Mm. and that's like such a a beautiful thing my gender and sexuality is very strange and I don't identity labels are wonderful but they they haven't personally been super helpful to to my journey Mm. what is helpful is seeing that complete possession of gender Mm. frankfurter there's no there's not even a moment of of question. There's not even jokes about Frankfurter being yeah. no. like it's, there's no joke. There's jokes at the expense of Brad and Janet about their prudishness around this. When Frankfurter is having sex with Brad or Janet, you know, Brad's not like, oh, my God, this is a man or whatever you would say. It's just like, oh, my God, like you're not Janet. Right. Because mm-hmm. you could expect those jokes to be pretty constant. That's just not what it's about. And I think that that's a really power. It was very powerful and has been powerful to me growing up more so than any after school special type of queer show that we might have been gifted. Yeah. Whenever I go, I go as Rocky to get back to our, uh, mm. our and I like hmm. to, you know, I do the gold booty shorts and I like to really use the um, the bandages to sort of like, A, stay mm. warm, stay warm if it's winter. <laughs> it was always a character that was like the part of me that just so desperately wanted to be a boy or like a man mm. or whatever, you know, like, but Rocky is such mm-hmm. a perfect example because he's such a a femme man. I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain, but like Rocky is like my gender. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) I do remember one of the things that you say when Janet says, I don't like men with a lot of muscles. You're supposed to yell. Yeah. Just one big one. (laughs) (laughs) 
I really like Janet as a couple with with Rocky. I kind of wanted that to work out, too. Yeah, yeah I feel like he kind of needs someone a little bit less gangbusters when he's just being born and yeah. assimilating to being alive. Yeah. Someone that doesn't like chain him to a, a bed. Yeah, <laughs> like, you know, you know. <laughs> yeah. I would go as Dr. Frankenfurter and and I will when it is safe to do so. You are a Frankfurter. You're going to go as Frankenfurter. I mean, I feel like now I am. Yeah. Yes. I need to feel those clothes and like what my body wants to do in those clothes. I guess like I would be like Brad in the ending too, where he's just like his legs, he's like Mm -hmm. (laughs) stretching against his will, practically like amazed and scared at how sexy he feels. One of the silver linings that I am imagining onto this time of just like everyone having to go through this you know, losing a lot of what we took for granted before and having to rebuild ourselves and kind of trying to reemerge is that like, for all of us, like there had to have been stuff that we were doing before that wasn't working. And then, you know, getting this chance to be traumatically reborn. It's like, okay, like if we must do that, then I'm going to be sexily reborn. Is that a proclamation? Yes. That's what I'm proclaiming. Yeah. Something you said, Sarah, about how you like wanted to feel those clothes, like feel who you would be in those clothes. Recently, uh, like about five years ago, I got really into drag and burlesque. I'm not like a very sexy person. I'm kind of like, a like, you know, like I'm just not a, an outwardly, I don't exude it. I feel like you're like Bruce Springsteen in the I'm on fire video. Shit. <laughs> I'll fucking take that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but I don't have those feelings. That's not the way that I associate with myself, but doing drag and burlesque mm-hmm. is the time that that did change not forever but in those moments as those characters which is what drag is mm-hmm. you know of course mm-hmm. i don't know it's it's amazing how clothing can change like everything about your relationship to your to yourself in a moment oh yeah how weird is that it's huge I mean, I think like dragon burlesque in particular are literal magic. Yeah. Like I think not just like they're it's magical, mm. like it's magic because right. it takes an element of our lived reality, which is everything is performance and augments it to a place where it changes the reality through that augmentation. It, it like acknowledges that performance is, is important and something that we all pretend isn't a real thing or isn't like really as fundamental mm. as it is. It cranks it up and then it exposes everything that is exposed exposed as a result of that. I've only been in one burlesque performance and I I played basically the Brad in the situation. I played a guy who gets who who gets too handsy and gets castrated. (laughs) I have just the fondest memories of that. It's wonderful. (laughs) You know, it reveals things about our everyday existence that are not revealed to us in living our everyday existence. Right. Or just like noticing how much you're performing in your day to day life. And you're like, do I want to be doing all that work necessarily? (laughs) Like you said, I mean, it's camp and it's also just fun. It's like an unanalyzed self that just gets to exist Mm. and be large and be strange Mm. and perhaps do things that that seem probably I don't know if you've ever been to a drag show, but there can be a lot of blood. There can be a lot of (laughs) violence and a lot of, you know, things that that you could if you wanted to sort of pick apart to find a lot of problematic elements, just like anything. But at the at the same time, there's that acceptance of each other and and good faith yeah i don't know i I found it to be a space that isn't like 
any other space in the world. And we owe much of that to Rocky Horror. <sighs> I don't know. You, I, I highly recommend it to everybody to just go out there one time and do a drag or burlesque show yeah. and, and just get fucking sexy and feel good about yourself go on a drive get a flat find a drag show yeah get in that gay haunted house (laughs) there was a movie called freebie and the bean where and like tons of other movies in the 70s where this was the premise and also ace ventura where there's just like james Caan has to like shoot to death this monstrous I guess within the world of the movie, a trans person and like they're monstrous because they're trans. And that's the point, how that was kind of the cinematic world of the time. And, and, you know, we're trying to pull the train out of the station, but I don't think it's really quite left currently. And I don't know. I feel like the thing about Frankenfurter is that like, he's not monstrous because of his sexuality. I don't think in the world of the movie, he's monstrous because he, I don't know, just has issues like people do. His issues, to, to Chelsea's point, is the like, like his ego is fucking nuts. Right. Chelsea, in your, your research, looking at criticism, like why do people say the movie's bad? The consent thing, which we talked about. And I think the language people get upset about the use of transvestite. Oh, okay. Like pre-2015 reality. <laughs> you know, like the time where other words were used because yeah. we right. didn't have foresight in, you know, 50 years ahead. Yeah. You know, I mean, people people have their uh, right to their uh, their feelings and opinions. I don't share them personally. Sure. Um, but, you know, I think it's that. And then it's also, which I know you guys have talked about in Silence of the Lambs and stuff, the the trans villain, the trans murderer, the the scary trans person who, whatever, you know what I'm trying to say. And that's one of the crit- yeah. criticisms, which sure, you know. Oh, and, and I think it's worth talking about Richard O'Brien, who is, you know, one of my deep soul people, has said some problematic things about, mm-hmm. you know, trans women, basically mm-hmm. that trans women can never be exactly the same as biological women. So he's like... And is, is Richard O'Brien trans? I think right now they, and I'm sorry if I've misgendered, I'm not quite sure. I think that it's not a super big deal to Richard O'Brien, what pronouns are used, but um, they are non-binary. I think agender might be what they use. And they've Mm -hmm. always been that way. I mean, they've always Mm -hmm. been extremely genderqueer in a way that Mm -hmm. pretty much nobody was. So, you know, there's controversy sort of around some of the things that he said um, a couple times in interviews when kind of pressed to answer that question. Mm. It is what it is. And uh, I tend to try, and I know you guys do too, to take things in their context Mm -hmm. of the time that they were made and what they meant in the time that they were made, which of course, 1975, it's just... I don't know. It's a, it's a banner year. What else is there? It's, it's like the world of freebie and the bean and like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, let's just shoot this person to death and make fun of them. I love, and I know that this movie isn't meant to be, this isn't like a horror movie, but I, this is a thing that I love Frankenfurter in the context of is like the future of horror villains for the next 20 years after this are going to be like radically sexless. Like they are, Mm. they are not Mm. fun. Like Michael Myers is just, Except Freddy. He's just a creepy uncle. He's yeah. a bitchy pest. Uh, but he's and, the exception. <laughs> totally. But like they're <laughs> largely just sexless machines that destroy anything with a libido. Like that's all. And that is their libido. Very in tune with masculinity of the time, I feel like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like and like Leatherface and, and uh, Frankenfurter are two wonderful, strange 
villains in that context. Just like sweet babies who just need some guidance (laughs) and just want to have a nice dinner. No. You also, you're like, well, why did they leave transsexual? Like, why did they come to Earth? They can't have thought like transsexual had to be pretty bad if Earth was going to be better, right? But they want to go home too. Yeah. You know, I'm going to say this on the show. Just, I just need it to be set in stone. When I die, I want... At my funeral, a big performance with everybody that I care about doing uh, I'm Going Home, the song that Frank does. And uh, it gets me every time. It's Frank's kind of like one moment of weakness and vulnerability. You know, he sings his song. He's finally going home. But it's a very beautiful song. But then at the end, you know, he's crying. His makeup's down his face. And then he turns to this giant audience clapping for him. And then he kind of blinks and, and like they're gone. Yeah. And it's this like really strangely powerful and sad moment. Uh. The one moment of his vulnerability where you get any kind of commentary into like his gender and his journey of like once he did emulate Feyre and, and once he did that, he came into this power that he has for better and worse. And and yeah, it's just that moment where like kind of this narcissistic character realizes that time's up. It is a great song for that. Yeah. And I, not a dry eye in the house. No will way, there be. man. No way. Uh-huh. And like, to me personally, Frankenfurter is just a very lovable character. Like, I feel like we all want to love and be loved. And like, that's what gets us in the most trouble. And sometimes you have to take half of meatloaf's brain and put it in another guy you made. But like, we all make mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that if you divorce it from its problematic elements, it is a story of somebody trying to find like a a love and a match and doing so in ways that that hurt people around them. But I don't know. I think there's something to that. And I think it must there must be some of Richard O'Brien's loneliness in this, Mm. you know, very non-emotional movie. But then it's like you kind of see a little window into like his hurt, I think, in that moment. Yeah. And like riffraff gazing out the window. Yeah. Yeah. Like being the outcast and the outcast party. Yeah. Alex, who's the daddy? So hard. I mean, we talked about who we wanted to dress up as, which I feel like is some somehow our acknowledgement of it. That's like who's our personal daddy. Yeah. 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 Who who is our personal daddy? I don't I don't know. This is like one where I feel I, I have no idea. I appreciated this time how we see Magenta come in for the time warp, how like desperate to fuck she is like she just. <laughs> Her dripping thirst in that whole performance is, which doesn't like play into the rest of the movie. Like I loved it so much and I I appreciated that. But yeah, I, Columbia, I just love, I love Columbia so much. I love the, I love the character. I love the presentation for no reason outside of the fact that as was being discussed earlier, uh, Columbia is the only character that calls uh, Dr. Furter on his bullshit. I like her the most. I'd like to give her a smooch. I like that you just said Dr. Furter. That was nice. My personal nominee is Janet. Mm. She's able Mm -hmm. to do the thing that I think that sex scene fantasizes people can do, but that is actually pretty rare. And that's why you shouldn't try to have surprise sex with people (laughs) where you're able to separate your cultural baggage from what you actually want, like really fast. She's Mm. like, well, I've been told that this is bad, but it feels good. So fuck it. I'm going to get some more of this thing that I like. And then she had sex with Rocky. 
And that was another song that I spent a lot of time singing in eighth grade after I downloaded off of Kaza. Ooh, Kaza. <laughs> what about you, Kelsey? Well, you know, okay. Will you guys do me a favor and and tell me what for you qualifies a daddy? Yeah. But I just need to know exactly what the parameters are for your specific type of daddy. The point is there's no parameters. The point is it is exposes you more than it exposes the, the lie. All right, all right, all right. The point is that it's an act of pure aggression okay. to ask right. someone to say who the daddy is. It's not like you're going to say it, we're going to go, wrong daddy, idiot. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's you and you saying who it is and saying your rationale will learn a thing about you. Okay, all right, all right. Well, I think I might go with Eddie. Oh, wow. Mm. And like, you know, it kind of matches up with your Columbia because it's like when Eddie just like picks up Columbia, like she's just nothing mm. and puts her right on the back of the motorcycle. <laughs> Ooh, it's mm, yeah, it's uh, it, he's just I can't get over how hot Meatloaf is in this movie. Oh, yeah. Also, Meatloaf is kind of the daddy because he got to be in this iconic movie and only shoot like one number. And then I guess the shot of his body under the table. But he didn't have to be around for what seems like a very cold, unpleasant shoot some of the time. Yeah. yeah from what I've heard, it wasn't fun. Yeah. <laughs> I will really quickly mention that I think, okay, I had this like very emotional experience during the pandemic because I think it was the night before the election, mm. there was a benefit table read that Rocky Horror, the original cast did, and some other people like Seth Green played Riff Raff. Uh, but it was the first time and like only time because Tim Curry does not like Rocky Horror. He doesn't like, you know, he's not happy with Rocky Horror, uh, which is such a bummer. But he came in and he was Frankfurter for like the only time he's ever done it. And he was, you know, as you guys know, he had a stroke and he has a very hard time communicating. So he like mm. was given his all, but it would be like, Everybody was really trying to sort of help Tim Curry with his lines. But at the same time, Tim Curry was sort of like annoyed by this and it was sort of perfect. So a lot of times like his line would be late, but it'd be searing. You know what I mean? It, would just be like, it wouldn't be on time because, you know, he, he's having a little he was having trouble with timing. And but his wife was also there helping him. And you could just see him kind of like giving her looks like stop it stop it you know <laughs> and uh but yeah he just still has like this very amazing quality about him where he just like possesses everything around him and it was such a and you know he did it for the election and he did it because it they were raising money um and it was just like a really kind of beautiful moment in all of this horror yeah Take a break from the horror and enjoy Rocky Horror. And enjoy Rocky Horror, yeah. So I'm like so glad that I saw that because it'll never happen again. Oh, man. That's so beautiful. I was just going to have Chelsea remind us how to find Chelsea. Oh, yes. Um, you can find me on Twitter at AmerHysteria and then on Instagram at American Hysteria Podcast. And it's such a good podcast. And like everybody, if you haven't listened, please go listen. It's so wonderful to be immersed in and... Moral panics are important to talk about and you make it fun. Oh, well, that's that's a really wonderful compliment. I so appreciate that. And I think you mentioned this before, but Chelsea did a You're Wrong About episode last year about killer clowns. So fun. Oh. And like, maybe not a moral panic, but certainly a panic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All 
right, everybody, that is this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Chelsea Weber-Smith for hanging with us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, check out Chelsea's fabulous podcast, American Hysteria. Of course, we are huge, huge fans. Thanks so much to Carolyn Kendrick, the producer of our show. You can find Carolyn's newest album, The Music of You Are Good, volume one on Bandcamp. You can check out Carolyn at carolynkendrick.com. Remember, you can support us and uh, get bonus episodes at patreon.com slash you are good. Thank you to Fresh Lesh, fabulous DJ, who is responsible for transitional beats. We appreciate you, Lesh. I think that's all we got for you for now. Thanks for doing this with us. We appreciate you. I hope you're having a tremendous autumn. All right. So long, all. <laughs>